Well, good morning. We are back here this morning in Deuteronomy. A little bit late, but we will still begin. Better late than ever. Uh, Why don't I open us in prayer, and then we'll pick up in Deuteronomy 14 this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the forgiveness that you have offered us in Christ. And we thank you that you have, in Christ, inaugurated a new covenant in which we stand with great freedom and great privilege. The greatest of all is knowing you because you have sent your spirit. And so we pray this morning that as we gather to learn what you have written in Deuteronomy 14, that your spirit would inform our minds and strengthen our hearts that we might walk before you in greater faithfulness. Grant us your blessing this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Deuteronomy 14 uh, covers a couple different topics. One of them, my favorite, food. Uh, But before we get there, uh, we'll do a really quick review because Deuteronomy 14, though it seems to change topics, really doesn't. It continues to approach the issue of worship from a slightly different perspective. Moses began talking about formal worship in Deuteronomy 12, verse 1. And he starts with the command to destroy foreign places of worship and foreign methods of worship, and Israel is to devote herself entirely to Yahweh alone. Then Moses starts to address a few places where things might go wrong. They might be tempted to worship in any place they choose. They are not to do that. They related to that there are certain domesticated animals that they are able to eat wherever they want in their cities, but they have to slaughter them in proper ways. That issue is related to formal worship because up until this point, they could only kill the animal by the tabernacle before they ate its blood. So Moses is changing uh, things after Israel enters the land just a little bit. Moses explains how Israel can consume Animal sacrifice, animals that would be eligible for sacrifice and still acknowledge God's gift after he deals with where Israel is to worship. Moving on, he goes on to three different cases where Israel might be tempted to worship other gods. In case one, there is a Curiosity about foreign gods in Deuteronomy 12, verses 29 to 32. In chapter 13, verses 1 to 5, if a professional, we might say, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams tries to lead them astray, they are to resist. In chapter 13, verses 6 to 11, if an intimate friend or associate invites them to worship other gods, they are to resist. And it culminates in the last one, how to handle those who have given into the invitations to worship false gods. That deals with the destruction of cities in chapter 13, verses 12 to 18. Moses now transitions from how to worship properly to what sort of worshipers are proper for worship. So if this is how we are to worship, what sort of people are we to be as we engage in that worship? That is what Moses transitions to into Deuteronomy 14. So we'll just take the first two verses 
of that that Moses uses to explain what sort of people are Israelites to be as they worship the Lord. So Deuteronomy 14, starting in verse 1. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So this is the premise. You are sons or children of the Lord your God. And that is a remarkable and somewhat unprecedented claim. In other passages in Deuteronomy, God has been called like a father, and Israel has been called like a son. So there is a simile there between them. So if we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 31, I'll flip there and quick read it. Moses says, In the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. So there's a simile there. In chapter 8, verse 5, we have something similar, this time dealing with the Lord's discipline. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So in each of those cases, the Lord acts like a father. But in Deuteronomy 14, we have something different. The Israelites are no longer called children of Abraham, per se, no longer called the sons of Israel. They are called the sons of the Lord your God. That creates an identification between the Lord and his people that has never been articulated in this sort of way before. This uh, reveals an intimacy that is supposed to exist between the Lord and his people, Uh, The same sort of intimacy that a man has with his son. So no longer is their relationship like father and son. It is father and son-like in its intimacy and identification. And it's that issue of identification that Moses is dealing with here in the next section. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. If you have a different translation, that might read a little bit differently. When Moses prohibits bloodletting and hair cutting, he's doing this in the context of false worship, right? That's why we spent our time in review. In chapter 12 and in chapter 13, Moses is cutting off avenues of false worship for Israel to engage in. He has not left that. He's still on that topic. So when it comes to issues of cutting yourselves or making baldness on your heads for the dead, that is related to false worship. Now these were signs, um, these were practices that were done as part of funerary rites. So when a relative died, family members would often either cut themselves or cut off their hair. And uh, the reason they would do that is because hair that continually grows and blood were both signs of life and vitality. A little bit murky as to exactly why people would cut themselves and cut off their hair, but there are a few different possibilities, and likely it's a combination of these, and different cultures would give different weights to each of these reasons. I'll I'll quick give you three of them. First, to vitalize the ghost of the deceased person. So in ancient near thought... Very much in modern Christian thought, 
even though a person die, they're not dead dead, right? There's a difference between being dead and being non-existent. In Christian thought, we believe to be dead is to be present with the Lord. We don't know what that means exactly. We just know that there is some part of us that continues on in existence after the body dies. They thought the exact same way. Not in relation to Christ, but in that something of us continues on. And that that being of the deceased person uh, has some sort of life to them, and by cutting themselves and pouring out their blood and shutting off their hair, it's as if they're trying to give greater life force to the deceased so that they can continue on in a better existence. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is it is uh, excessive guilt over their continued life, and they're wishing to share that life uh, or to mourn the fact that they themselves aren't in that position with them. So we, we all are aware that those who lose friends in combat often spend much of the rest of their lives with the guilt that they were not killed in combat along with their comrades. This could be simply an expression of the guilt that they continued on. Why should a disease take one person in a family and not another? We don't know. Um, nor do they. The third thing it could be is to show that they were so distraught over the death of their friend or relative. This is a way of showing that they would rather be dead with that person than continue on in life. It's kind of a way to appease the, the person who's deceased. Because one thing that was also common throughout the ancient Near East and is still common in indigenous tribes is that there is a ghost of that person that continues on and that ghost can either be a positive or a negative force for those who continue on in life. Um, If that sounds a little fuzzy to you, talk to Brian Hofer sometime when he comes up. I was able to chat with him for about an hour over this topic. He says people are still afraid to drill wells in the ground because of the spirits that are underground. And the reason they're there is because they're buried, right? So only certain people in indigenous tribes drill wells. Most people don't want to go underground. What Moses is saying is that sort of mentality is inappropriate for those who worship the Lord. Life comes from God. As sons of God, these people are to be known by the life they have, not the loss they mourn. Excessive mourning has no place for God's people because we are expressing solidarity with him, the Lord of life, more than we are expressing solidarity with those who have departed into death. So if we mourn excessively, we rebel against providence, right? Uh, That is to believe that God is cruel in what he has done. And so part of what Moses is likely doing here is telling the Israelites, do not be excessive in your mourning. If we mourn excessively, we also betray a lack of confidence in our eternal hope. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the passage that uh, we, we often will remind ourselves of in times of death, we don't mourn as those who do not have hope. The mourning of a Christian is to be qualitatively different than those who are not Christians because we are sons of the Lord of life and so we are to identify ourselves with that Lord and act like his children. 
And again, these exercises were often done in order to curry favor with the dead because they have access to information and knowledge and powers that we simply don't. That takes us into a little bit of a rabbit trail, but this is why Saul approaches the witch of Endor to raise up Samuel. He's looking for information from Samuel. What shall I do in this upcoming battle? And the Lord is also saying by this, you do not look to your dead ancestors or anyone else for information about the future. You trust me. And so that again ties into issues of worship because the Israelites archaeologically anyway, were never able to get over the idea of ancestor worship until after the Babylonian exile. As long as Israel was in the land, they seemed to engage in the practice of ancestor worship, and Moses here is trying to steer them in a different direction. Verse 2 gives the rationale again. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, so they're holy, Another reason they're not to do this. Third reason, the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So if they are chosen to be unique, they cannot engage in the sorts of practices that all other peoples engage in. They have to be separate in their worship practices, not just in refusing to worship foreign idols, but also in refusing to worship their ancestors. I'll pause right there. Thoughts or questions over the first two verses? Yes, uh, hair. hair. Hair was a symbol of vitality, yeah. Well, that depends. <laughs> Marilyn. Right, so Marilyn brings up the prophets of Baal cutting themselves in their standoff with Elijah. That is different, but you can see uh, really strong similarities, right? They're cutting themselves as a way to arouse the sympathy of of Baal. And in the same case here, one of the thoughts behind cutting themselves is to arouse the sympathy of their deceased ancestors so that they would act in benevolent ways toward them. Good question. I don't know what they did for the 30 days of mourning uh, for Moses and Aaron, which was also customary for um, people of prominence. So I believe the same thing happened with uh, Joseph when he died, extended uh, mourning rites. What you'll find if you go forward in the New Testament is that beating the breast uh, was often a sign of distress and loss. Perfectly acceptable, right? Uh, so there, there are practices that are proper and practices that are not. Anything that comes close to self-mutilation is taken off of the table. It appears as though anything that does not require self-mutilation does not display the same excessive mourning that others would engage in, and so it was an acceptable practice. So what all, all was entailed in the 30 days, I don't know, uh, but certainly this would have been 
beating their breast would have certainly been part of it uh, because they are showing loss, which, again, going back to the issue of how Christians mourn, it is right and proper for Christians to mourn because death is, in some ways, an unnatural thing for us to experience. And so it is good and right, and in mourning, one of the things we do is we display to the world, death is not right. But in communicating that death is not right, we also say Christ is victorious over death. So our mourning is entirely different than what it is for people who have no hope. Thanks, Lee. I didn't have that reference. It's great. Okay. All right, verse 3. You shall not eat any abomination. That seems like it's coming out of left field, but it's not. What we're going to do is actually read verses um, 4 to 8, and we'll come back and make any comments on verse 3 a little bit later on. These are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these. The hoof, uh, the camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof. They are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, it is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcass you shall not touch. These are diet restrictions on land animals. And what we'll see is Moses gives the same order in Deuteronomy here as comes up in Leviticus 11. And we'll be turning to Leviticus 11 in just a little bit. Uh, But right now, let's keep in mind the context. Israel is holy to the Lord. They are chosen like him. They are supposed to be unlike any other people group on the face of the earth. And that is supposed to be reflected not only in the fact that they don't consult the dead, but also in the fact of what they do and do not eat. This means Israel's diet is a matter of ethics. This is a moral activity. For Christians, eating is a moral activity. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How we eat is a matter of ethics. Our diet uh, is not restricted in the same way Israel's was. But nonetheless, Israel is aiming for the glory of God in what Israel eats. We aim for the glory of God in how we eat as well. So there are three organizations here, land animals, water animals, and air animals. Those, again, are uh, the same pattern of Leviticus 11, and it follows the same um, taxonomy order as Genesis 1. At any rate, Moses begins with land animals, and he begins with the animals that may be eaten in verse 4. He lists, I believe, 10 of them, and then he gives a guiding principle in verse 6. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and choose the cud among the animals you may eat. So that's the guiding principle. Then in verses 7 and 8, 
he lists a few cases where it could be ambiguous or fuzzy as to whether or not the animal is acceptable. He starts with three. Verse seven, those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you may not eat these. The camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud, but do not part the hoof. The camel's hoof is not cloven all the way up. Rabbits and rock badgers or hyrax, I'm not sure which translation you might have. Does anyone know what a hyrax looks like? Okay. Imagine a jackrabbit-sized gopher. That's a hyrax. All four of its legs look very similar to a rabbit's legs, uh, or feet, I should say. A rabbit has the, clo- the, the division all the way through, but it's not exactly a hoof. It's a little bit different, right? It's soft, it's a paw, um, and instead of living in holes in the ground, they live in dens or cracks in mountainous areas. So a jackrabbit size gopher. So here, it fits in line then that it is listed along with the rabbit. Their feet look exactly the same. Both of them are unclean, not because they do not chew the cud. By appearance, they do. Scientifically, they don't, but we're going by appearance in, in Mosaic law. They appear to chew the cud, but none of them have the proper footwear, we might say. Verse 8, the pig, the hoof is, uh, fits the bill. However, it does not chew the cud, and so it is left as an unclean animal. The conclusion in both cases is that they are unclean, and there is a special note on the pig here. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. That could encompass all of the animals listed in verses 7 and 8. More likely, it refers specifically to the pig. Few animals have been more uselessly domesticated than the pig, right? Camels have a utilitarian use, and Israel used camels. They were a sign of wealth. Rock badgers are wild, rabbits are are wild, so those animals, like the gazelle or the roebuck or mountain goat, would otherwise be edible, but uh, they're disqualified um, for, for other reasons. The pig, though, has no utilitarian use whatsoever, right? And added to that, uh, they, they are useless for food as well. So in Israel's case, the pig ended up being exceptionally unclean. In other cults, they were often used, along with a dog, by the way, in sacrifices to demon gods. And so they probably had an additional association there uh, of uncleanness as well. Now the rationale for these animals, why are these animals clean and other ones aren't? We don't know exactly. In fact, let me put the question to you this way. Are animals ruled out because they do not chew the cud and have the hoof cloven all the way? Or is it that they are ruled out and incidentally they do not chew the cud or have the hoof cloven all the way? Which one comes first? Which is the criteria? Do these animals happen to fit what is clean and unclean? Or are these things actually the criteria they must fit in order to qualify? We don't know which order that comes in. But I will give you two reasons 
almost certainly why these animals are not ruled out. First, Israel is not looking, and the Lord is not looking, to what other cultures use for their diets or for their sacrifices. Every culture, cattle were venerated, or if not venerated, used in worship. They were somehow related to worship in almost every single culture. So the animals that are acceptable for Israel were also acceptable for other cultures. And so we cannot look simply to reasons related to worship practices. Another issue to rule out is hygiene. That may have been an added benefit, an added rationale, perhaps, in the mind of God, along with issues related to sacrifice, but they do not explain, at least in whole, why these animals were rejected. More likely, it is because of how the animals traveled in relation to the sphere of life they inhabited. So if we go back to Leviticus 11, keep the fingers in Deuteronomy 14, and keep one in Leviticus 11, because we'll keep coming back to reference this as we go forward here. There is a little bit of precedent for looking at how an animal travels in relation to whether or not they are edible. Leviticus 11, verses 20 to 28. So we'll, we'll read it. I'll have very little comment about it, but it's good to read. All winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have joint legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, the grasshopper of any kind, but all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. And the reason for that is, almost certainly, they don't hop on the ground. But keep going on here a little bit. Verse 24, And by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every animal that parts the hoof, but is not cloven-footed, or does not chew the cut, is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean, and all that walk on their paws, hands, actually as the Hebrew has it, among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. And whoever touches their carcasses shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. They are unclean to you. So more likely than issues of hygiene, more likely than issues related to foreign practices of worship, is the issue of how animals travel in relation to their sphere of life, right? Animals on the ground are hooved. Animals in the air have wings. Animals edible in the waters have fins and scales, and they, they swim. Octopus don't swim the same way a fish swims. Most likely, though, animals allowed for consumption follow two criteria. One, they keep the laws of Torah. All of the animals that are ruled out seem to be meat eaters in particular, which means they consume blood. Animals keeping Torah is significant. If you will go back and read the Sabbath command, which we won't do because of time, even the livestock are to keep the Sabbath. Animals are to obey the laws of Torah, and the animals that are edible are those that can do so. 
Additionally, animals allowed for human consumption, for Israelite consumption, are similar to those that the Lord himself consumes on the altar. The Lord takes birds, certain kinds of birds, but birds. The Lord takes land animals, certain kinds of land animals. But the Lord expands it not just to include only the animals allowed on the altar, but those that are like the animals that are allowed on the altar. So he expands what Israel eats far beyond what he himself takes. There are no swarming things that are allowable on the altar. None of them are domesticated, right? So of the domesticated animals, Israel may eat what the Lord eats. They may also eat their wild counterparts. And then he expands that just a little bit with swarming things again. Again, remember the rationale. Deuteronomy 14, verse 1. You are sons of the Lord your God. As sons of God... Israel is to reflect in her diet the status of divine children. They are to be like their father. So are we. How often does Jesus say, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect? And so Israel is to match what the Lord takes on the altar. One more additional reason, now that the Lord takes nothing on the altar, that the food laws are done away with. Moving on, though, Uh, before we do that, uh, back to Deuteronomy 14. Any thoughts or questions over what we've covered with land animals so far? Yeah. No, we we are happy the food laws are done. All right. Back to Deuteronomy, verses 9 and 10, water animals. Of those that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. This follows the same pattern of you may eat, followed with you may not eat. The only rationale or criteria given for whether they are edible or not are fins and scales. Fortunately for Israel, they never really had access to the Mediterranean. And in the Sea of Galilee... There is, if not exclusively, at least predominantly, only fish. Israel has very, very limited vocabulary for sea animals. uh, And that's because they are, by and large, uh, all within the land and not able to access the sea. Verses 11 to 20. Winged creatures. You may eat all the clean birds, but these are the ones that you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl and the short-eared owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion, the vulture, the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopy, I don't even know, and the bat. And all winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. Moses begins again with the offer to eat any clean bird, verse 11. Then he moves on to what is restricted. Out of those restricted animals, five of them are identified with a pretty high degree of certainty. 
the raven, or the crow, the hawk, the stork, the hoopy, and the bat. Everything else is pretty uncertain. Uh, what exactly is being referred to? But it appears as though the common thread, again, is that these animals eat either dead animals, things that have died by themselves, or animals that have the blood in them. And likely those two things are related. Verse 20, uh, verse 19. All winged insects. So now he's moved away from birds, but he is still dealing with winged creatures. All winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All winged things you may, all clean winged things you may eat. In essence, Moses is not changing anything from uh, what Leviticus 11 had given uh, up until this point. So if you want to know the details of what's all entailed there, you can go back to Leviticus 11. Thoughts or questions real quick before we transition and uh, put the summary on this. All right. Let's go to Deuteronomy 14, verse 3. Verse 8 and verse 21. So verse 3. You shall not eat any abomination. Verse 8. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat and their carcasses you shall not touch. And remember I said that that may refer exclusively to the pig Maybe, but it might also refer to broader categories than that. Look at verse 21. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns, that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. When it says you may not eat anything that has died naturally, that is the same thing as carcass, in verse 8. So Moses is saying this. Do not eat any abomination, which includes any of these restricted animals. Do not touch anything that has died by itself. Do not touch the carcass. And do not eat from its flesh. Though a foreigner may eat what has died by itself. So a general prohibition in verse 21 And that is a bit of a change from verse 11. Now, uh, verse 14, verse 8 with a pig, sorry. So their carcasses you shall not touch. Verse 21, do not eat anything that has died naturally or any carcass. So which is it? Can you not touch it or can you not eat it or both? Well, the problem actually is a little bit deeper than that. Let's go back to Leviticus 11. Verses 5 to 8. Moses gives the same list. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. Verse 8 now. You shall not eat any of their flesh, 
and you shall not touch their carcasses, almost certainly referring to everything in verse 4, 5, and 6, the camel, the rock badger, and the hare. You shall not eat their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. Now, camels would no doubt need to be dealt with from time to time, right? They're used for travel. When a camel dies, what are you going to do? Not touch it? However, Leviticus 14, 21 Verse 24, sorry, verse 24. So Leviticus 11, verse 24. And by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcasses shall be unclean in the evening. Verse 24. And all that walk on their paws among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening, they are unclean to you. So here's the deal. In Leviticus 11, Moses says, if you touch a carcass, you're unclean until the evening. In Deuteronomy 14, he says, do not touch the carcass. Without qualification. Why does he make the change? Moreover, let's jump down to verses... Now, we already read verses 24 to 28. 28, though, whoever carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. They are unclean to you. That opposes Deuteronomy 14, 8, which is do not touch the carcass. So again, Leviticus 11, don't touch the carcass. If you do, you'll be unclean, but then you're good to go. Deuteronomy 14, don't even touch the carcass. Moses seems to change the rules. Why does he do that? But let's add one more Monkey wrench in the plan. Leviticus 11, verse 39. And if any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening, and whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. So here, it is permissible to eat the carcass of an animal that dies naturally. In Deuteronomy 14, Moses changes that. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally, verse 21. You can give it to the sojourner, you shall not eat it. So Moses seems to make a change again. Why does he do that? Now let's pay attention to the context. In Leviticus 11, Moses is dealing with purity. If you want to worship at the tabernacle, you have to be in a state of purity. Here's how you maintain that. Touch a dead animal, you're unclean until the evening. You eat a dead animal, you bathe, wash your clothes, you're unclean until the evening. Then at nightfall, you are clean again. Leviticus 11 is dealing largely with ritual purity. Leviticus 22, Moses notices a difference here. In Leviticus 22, verses 5 to 9, the regulations of purity that a priest had to live by are more intense and more stringent than what most people in Israel had to live by. 
So in Leviticus 22, verses 5 to 9, whoever of the priesthood of Aaron's descendants touches a swarming thing by which he may be made unclean or a person from whom he may take uncleanness, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat any of the holy things unless he has bathed his body in water. If you're a common Israelite, you don't need to bathe. If you're a priest, you need to bathe if you touch something unclean. Verse 7, when the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterwards he may eat of the holy things because they are his food. Verse 8, a categorical prohibition. He shall not eat what dies of itself or is torn by beasts, and so make himself unclean by it. I am the Lord. Moses applies the rules given to the priests to all of the people in Deuteronomy 14. Pay attention to the context. In Leviticus 11, he is dealing with the relation of Israelites to the tabernacle and by implication to the priesthood. The priests are holy. The people are common, you might say. They are they are clean. They are supposed to maintain a state of purity. But they're not holy like priests are. In Deuteronomy 14, Moses makes a switch. Verse 2. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. That doesn't mean they are holy in the same way priests are holy. It means they are unlike any other people group on the face of the earth. So where in, Deuter- in Leviticus 11, the comparison is between the laity of Israelites and the priests, now the comparison is between the people of Israel who are holy and all the nations who are not holy. There is a difference in who is being compared and contrasted in the two contexts. So Moses doesn't change any of Leviticus 11. What he's saying is you are to be unlike any of the peoples around you. And part of the way you are to be unlike the other peoples around you is by maintaining this special status of holiness, which is not now in ritual purity terms. It is now in terms of ethics, what may and may not be eaten. So he takes the greater restrictions for the priests and applies them to the people as a whole because the comparison is now between Israel as a holy nation and all of the surrounding nations around them. So Israel is to have a priest-like holiness compared to all of the peoples around them. All cultures had purity laws because all cultures had temples. So in that... Israel is no different from any other nation in Leviticus 11. However, Israel is not to be like any other nation, so their diet is restricted in Deuteronomy 14. So again, the issue is Israel's holiness in relation to the surrounding people. So Deuteronomy 14, verse 21. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it as an act of charity or as a business transaction, you may sell it to a foreigner. Why can you not eat it, but people who are not part of Israel, yet who live within the land, still eat it? 
Moses gives this reason. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. So the logic to these food laws is to make Israel distinct from all of the surrounding peoples around them. That leads us back to verse 3. You shall not eat any abomination. Does that mean the foods today listed here are still an abomination? No, it does not. What it means is not it is abhorrent because of its nature. It means it is abhorrent because if Israel were to eat these foods, it would make her like all of the nations around her. And that is abhorrent to the Lord. What makes these foods an abomination is context. It's particularly the context of the covenant made at Sinai. So David could kill a Canaanite in God's name. It would be abhorrent or an abomination for us to kill a Canaanite in God's name in the same way David did. So what is an abomination to the Lord can change based on the covenant. Added to that, in Christ, God has taken away all of the food laws. So none of these things are clearly an abomination in and of themselves. Food laws were a daily reminder to Israel every time she sat down to eat of her covenant status as God's people. Every time they came to table, they were to remember, we are children of the Lord our God, the other nations are not. So the distinction was made in who they could even eat with. Jesus broke down that division between Jew and Gentile. Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22, we're not going to read it all, But I'll I'll start off here in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was in contrast to the Israelites who were sons of God and that was made plain every time these people sat down to eat. Which is why Jews couldn't eat with Gentiles. It is imperative. It is a moral obligation of the Israelite to maintain the distinction between Jew and Gentile. That's why Jesus had all of his ministry inside the people of Israel. He stretched it a little bit when he went to the Samaritans, but he didn't eat with them. He ate only with the Israelites to maintain that distinction. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, largely related to the food laws here, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, Jew and Gentile, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, so on and so forth. You will also remember in Acts 2, that episode where Peter is up on the roof 
and the sheet comes down with all the reptiles, things that were categorically ruled out, and all manner of unclean animals, and the voice says, kill and eat. I've never eaten any unclean thing in my life, Lord. Kill and eat. Cornelius shows up at his house, and Peter's interpretation of the vision is this. The Lord has told me to call no man unclean. The greatest and most powerful nail in dispensational theology is food laws. When the food laws are taken away, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. All are brought in to one. So when we come here to Deuteronomy 14 and we read all of these food laws, it is great to think, oh, how wonderful it is that we can eat pork. But more importantly, how wonderful it is that we are all one in Christ. And he doesn't make distinctions among people the way he did in a former age. We are privileged children of God. And we can see that uh, even when we read Deuteronomy 14. Thoughts or questions? All right, very good. Thanks for joining. God willing, I'll see you next week.